Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, class, good morning. I would invite everyone to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 7, and then we'll pray and get started. All right, let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we yield before you and come through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. We know, O Lord, that all wisdom, that all knowledge, that all insight, that all illumination flows down from you to us and entreat you to bless us with your spiritual presence here today, to teach our hearts, to teach our minds, to open our eyes, and to draw us, O Lord, closer to you in knowledge of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, we pray, amen. So today we'll be focusing on Romans chapter 1, verses 7. We may get to verse 8. So Romans 1, 7 and 8 says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So, here now in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, we're opening up a new scene. We're opening up a new phase in the epistle, in the letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to those who are in the church at Rome. In that, what Paul now does is he begins expressing a personal concern over those individuals to whom he is writing. He's actually now speaking to specific individuals in the church at Rome and expressing his heartfelt concern over those people. Because when we take a step back, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, they're very objective, they're very general. It could, in theory, apply to anyone anywhere in the world. But now in verse 7, the Apostle Paul gets very specific, and he says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And now he begins speaking to the people personally. Paul gets personal. And the first thing Paul says is, to all who are beloved of God. The individuals in the church at Rome are beloved of God, which in plain English means they are the recipients of God's love. That's why they are called as saints, and that's that's why they are members of the church in Rome. Now, when John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We have to understand, church, that yes, indeed, God does love the world. But the love of God is not without distinction. Because while God has a general love for all of humankind, because he made men and women in his image, 
He has a particular love for those who are his own. He has a particular love that he expresses to those who are beloved by God and are now members of God's church. So John 3.16 is not lying when it says that God so loved the world, but that love is not without distinction. That is to say, God has a common love for all humankind, but a particular love for his elect. I love children in general. Children are a joy. They're a delight. They're full of energy. They're full of life. They're bubbly. They're energetic. They smile at you, and it warms your heart to see a child, a little person you can groom. I love children in general, but I have a particular love for my sons. And there's a way I now interact with my two sons that's distinct from other children who are not my own, other children who are now ultimately being cared for by their natural parents. So there's a common general love, and there's now a particular love that applies to those who are my own. And I say all this to say, church, that when someone is a true, born-again, regenerated Christian, that now comes with the benefits of that person being beloved by God, of, of being the particular, peculiar object of God's omnipotent, everlasting, never-dying love. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. Why does God show us grace? Because God is a God of grace. Because he, is, he simply is gracious and he chose to demonstrate to us unmerited favor. This tells us, church, that God's grace flows out of his love, and that grace is now effectual. God's grace, which now emanates as his, God's love, which now emanates as his, as his grace, is an electing and a, and a saving love. It redeems people, it rescues people, and now animates and inspires Christians to live the Christian life that God has called us to live. And because God is love, when someone is now a Christian, when someone is now born again, each and every Christian who, has, who exists, who ever existed and who will exist, is a child that is born out of love. They are born in love, and they are made to love as a function of the love of God. Church, when you are beloved by God, the only way or a man or a woman can actually know how to love at all is if they are beloved by God. God is love. He's the very definition of love. So it makes perfect logical sense. How could a person genuinely love anyone else if they don't have the ultimate example of what love is? For what are the two greatest commandments? To love God and to love your neighbor. And in fact, I dare say that if someone is not regenerated, if someone is not beloved by God and born again, their love doesn't matter. 
Their love isn't actually real because it's not based upon what the true infinite, infinite definition of what love is based upon God himself. Without God as our model and our mode of what love is, anything else we're left with is now imperfect, is now tainted, and that love is now polluted by what? By sin. Now you get a world in which people say, let's just love one another, which is now a love that denies what is truly true, that denies what is holy, that denies what is just, which is now not the ultimate barometer of what love is. Being beloved by God, being a child of God, gives now someone not only a sense of identity, it also gives them a sense of assurance which comes from heaven above. How many people search for recognition? How many people search for acceptance in the world when you are in Christ? God the Father looks down on you in Christ and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. The only way a man or a woman can ever be complete, can ever be whole, can ever actually live the Christian life and love God and love their neighbor is when they first realize that they are beloved by God. So Paul says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, and as I mentioned before, the fact that this letter is being written to the church in Rome actually matters. The geographic location is a big deal because Times Square, they say now, is the crossroads of the world. And if you go to Times Square, you're going to believe that fact very quickly because you see people of every different race, language, and creed walking through those streets. Rome back then was like Times Square is now, where you had a multitude of different individuals from everywhere in the world in one geographic place. So the fact that God in his word preserves a letter written to people in Rome tells us that the gospel really is for everyone. It is not limited by any geographic or tribal boundaries. And just from a strategic standpoint, Paul writing this letter to those in Rome is brilliant. Why is that? Because if you write a letter proclaiming and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to a place where the crossroads of the world exists, guess what happens? People are now going to hear that gospel and go all over the world and begin telling other people about Jesus Christ. I say all this to say, Paul writes letters to the church at Rome by design because God does not play dice and he knew exactly what he was doing. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Someone tell me. When we're talking about the biblical definition of a saint, what does that word mean? Say it again. And what does that mean? Very good. Saints is the plural version of the word. In Greek, hagios. 
the singular version of the word is holy. When you take the same word and move it from singular to plural, you go from holy to saints. So a person is holy, a group of people are now called saints. The best definition of holy in the Bible is separate, other, distinct. And here is why knowing the definition is important. What Roman Catholicism has done, it's given many people in, in the modern era this idea that a saint is someone extra special. That a saint is someone who's extra sanctified, right? So if you go to a uh, Roman Catholic church and you see a picture of Saint so-and-so, there's always a guy who has like this awesome gaze to the heavens and there's light shining and there's doves and you think they should be in heaven right now, right? Biblically defined, that is not what a saint is. Someone who is holy, a body of people who are saints, are merely separated. Separated from what to what? They are separated by God from the world to the Lord. They are separated out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So a, a regular run-of-the-mill Christian isn't regular or run-of-the-mill. Why? Because they're separated by God. They are now holy and now called as a saint. So when God now calls us, he regenerates us, he redeems us, he calls us out of the world, out of sin, out of the net of the devil, into the church of Jesus Christ, and now we are holy. And that idea is critically important to realize because when the Bible now says that we are holy or called as saints, that now does not suggest that everyone who is now Christian is sinless and perfect. You see, see the difference, right? Because if, if, you, if you think in your mind that holy means extra special, now you're going to have a false idea of what the Christian life actually is. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect. It does not mean angelic. It simply means you are now separated, but that separation is not accomplished by the self. It's accomplished by God. Now, hagios means holy, singular. Plural saints. This is going to be a tough question now. When the Bible calls the people of God holy or saints, does it mean the same thing when it calls God holy? Is the holiness of God and the holiness of a genuine Christian the same thing? No. Good. Right answer. Why? We can't compare, but why is it different? You're exactly right. How is the holiness of God and the fact that we as a people of God who are called to be holy, how are they different? Because we want to be clear when we read the Bible. We want to have a clear biblical understanding. Perfect. God is perfect. God is the ultimate definition of holiness because when we talk about the quality and the degree of holiness... There is nothing more holy than God. We, church, have extrinsic holiness. What does that mean? 
That means God, through Jesus Christ, he's the one who, he is the one who atones for our sin, who redeems us, and now as a function of us holding on to Jesus Christ in faith, our holiness and our purity is derived from him depositing his righteousness into us. But God is intrinsically holy. What does that mean? That means God is holy simply as a function of who he is. You and I, we are not intrinsically holy. You and I are intrinsically sinful. And if God doesn't touch us, we remain in our sinful state forever. But God doesn't need any extrinsic agent. God simply is perfect and sinless and holy forever as a function of who God is. And what does the book of Isaiah say? Chapter 6. In probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Isaiah sees God and the seraphim say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That means God is holy. He is holier. And he is holiest. Because in his very nature or essence, it is the very definition of holiness. And now this all makes sense because... Because God is supremely holy, he's radically separate, other, and distinct for you and I. Because you can't get more of a bigger contrast to a holy, perfect, infinite God than a finite, sinful, fallen creature. So God's holiness is, int is intrinsic. Ours is extrinsic. There's a difference not only of quality, but also of degrees. So, when we are beloved by God and therein called as saints, we're separated out of the world into God, and that, de and that designation of being a saint is not a, is not a destination, it's a starting point. When God now calls us as saints and he redeems us, we continue to walk and are progressively made more holy throughout our Christian lives. The Bible uses many examples to describe the growth of the Christian. Psalm 1 talks about being a tree that's planted. What's a tree do? It starts out as itty-bitty and then it grows and it grows, more branches, more branches, now it makes fruit. What does First John say? It talks about those who are uh, little children, young men, and fathers, meaning we are now growing in knowledge of the faith and growing in our holiness, meaning our desires, our yearnings for things that are separate or other or heavenly grow and increase where our fleshly carnal nature is crucified daily and all the desires of the flesh begin to fade out. So God never calls someone to be a saint and then leaves them alone. That's just where you start. And now as your life goes on, you progress in holiness, becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of separation, holiness, or being called as a saint is not anything new in the New Testament. Paul did not pull this idea out of thin air. 
because in the Old Testament, the idea of separation was everywhere. But in the Old Testament, the idea of separation was always external. The idea of separation now in the New Testament is internal. So someone explains me what I mean by that. When I say the idea of holiness or separation is not new in the New Testament, it's actually a very old idea. What do I mean when I'm saying that in the Old Testament, the separation was external, whereas now in the New, it's internal? Well, God began with Israel separating them from other people on the earth. Then he illustrated the tabernacle, there's outer court, there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. And only certain individuals were able to go at certain levels. Like people could go to the outer court. But only the priests could go into the holy place, and only the high priests could go into the holy place. Exactly. Essentially, the rule in the Old Testament was don't touch. It was stay away. It was beware, right? So exactly as you said, you had a tabernacle, which now represented a physical uh, meeting place in reality between the heavenly and the earthly. People could, in general, walk into the outer court, but the closer you got to God, there was separation. There was actually a veil in between... Um, where the uh, table of showbread was and where the Ark of the Covenant was and that veil separated where even regular priests and where the high priest can go. The degree of separation in the Old Testament was so radical, what happened if someone even touched the Ark of the Covenant? They died. Because that idea of separating the holy from the profane was everywhere in the Old Testament. Even the priests, they dressed a particular way. So when you looked at a man, you knew immediately he was separate, he was other, he was distinct. What happens now in the New Testament is after Jesus atones for sin on the cross, the veil is now torn, the separation is no longer there, and now through Jesus Christ, the separation we have is now internal. What does that mean? Now the law of God by the Holy Spirit is written on our hearts. So now as a function of who we are and the life that we live is separate, is other, is distinct from the ways of the world. And now instead of having a priesthood that had funny hats and gold and blue clothing, now we have the church of Jesus Christ. Because what does 1 Peter chapter 2 tell us? That there is a universal priesthood of all believers. Because that separation is now not external, it is internal. Good. So in order to be called as a saint, we must first be beloved by God. Out of love flows grace. That grace is effectual. Now we are called as saints. Because our identity precedes our activity. Doctrine precedes life. We must first know that we are beloved by God. We must first know that we are the recipients of God's unmerited favor before we can now step out into the world and actually act holy, and actually act saintly, and actually act separate, other, and distinct. It flows from knowing first who God is, 
and then knowing who you and I are in Christ and then stepping out into the world and being who God has called us to be. So Paul says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul says grace to you, that's a benediction. What's a benediction? It's a blessing. It's a benediction. It's a good word, right? In uh, Numbers chapter 6, you have the ironic benediction. May the Lord be upon you, etc., etc. It's essentially a minister of the word imparting a good word or a blessing to the people. So in the same way the priests in the Old Testament would give a benediction to the people, the Apostle Paul now as an apostle is giving a benediction to those in the church at Rome. And the reason why ministers do this is because the word of God is what? An ordinary means of grace. It's an ordinary means of God's power, his illumination, his truth flowing from him into our lives. So when a minister of the word now gives a benediction to the people, this is an ordinary means of grace by which those who hear and read it can now receive God's grace, and that grace is now effectual. And of course, whenever someone knows that they are beloved by God, and they are called to be holy, and they are called to be in and amongst the assembly of the saints, that gives someone that gives someone a sense of peace. It gives someone a sense of assurance. Because guess, just think about this. If you truly know you are beloved by God, if God has demonstrated his love and his grace to you, do you know what that does to a person? It gives a man hope. It gives a man peace. It gives a man assurance. Do you know what happens if you know God hates you, or he's displeased with you, or he is radically against you? It destroys you. It makes you run naked and ashamed into the, into the wilderness, covering your private parts with fig leaves. It completely dismantles who you are. But being beloved by God and having that Holy Spirit-inspired assurance now gives you, at being the recipient of God's grace, now that gives you peace. And here's the final thing I'll say today. When the Bible talks about peace, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. The Hebrew word for peace means more than peace we talk about in the 21st century. The Hebrew word shalom refers to a totality of existence where you have uh, spiritual prosperity, you have mental prosperity, you have well-being. In other words, every area of your life is calm and still because it's a positive peace. Negative peace simply refers to the absence of conflict. So me and John Doe could be at war and then right now we declare a ceasefire. That's negative peace, meaning there's just an absence absence of hostility, but me and John Doe on the inside could actually still hate one another. But the positive peace 
that's granted by God's grace flows from him actually has this organic positive working in our hearts so now something is living vibrant always there organically drawing people together because people are at peace with God so when the Apostle Paul writes to a church and says grace to you and peace if a man knows he's the recipient of God's grace and now he has peace he has shalom in life that's all he needs because if God by his grace looks at a person and that person now knows they are beloved what else could a person actually need when they know God through Jesus Christ looks upon them and is well pleased that's the power of a good word that's the power of a benediction So we'll stop there. Any questions? Let's. Yes, question? Yeah, you're talking about love, God's love. Yes. And isn't it he also by the means by which we love? Because God is love, the reason why love exists, period, in the world is because of God. The problem now is that, so without God, who is love, there would be no love. What happens now is that whenever an individual tries to exhibit or demonstrate love separate from God, you end up messing it up. It ends up being polluted, and it now becomes an uh, imperfect love, which can actually act not for someone's long-term spiritual benefit, it can actually work to destroy them. So love in the world's definition is actually very dangerous. Ask the question again. Isn't God also the means by which we especially those of us who are in Right. He's the means. So the, the way in which anyone knows how to love properly, properly is through God. He's the means. So God is the object and the means. We look to God, and now we know and understand what love actually is. Embodied perfectly in who? Jesus Christ. Jesus sacrificed himself with a purposeful act of the will and underwent the wrath of God for the long-term spiritual benefit of those who he died specifically for, his elect. Acting in reality, showing us what real love is. No. God is love. So if you now try to actually love distinct from God, it's not real love. I'm sure you think it's love and you call it love, but the end result is not loving. Okay, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for your light, your illumination, and kneel before you, O Lord, today, knowing that you are a true, genuine teacher. We entreat you to open our eyes and cultivate the soil in our hearts that your word will grow, that your word will manifest, and you will raw to work in our hearts to make us more sanctified, more holy each and every day. 
as the ultimate object of who we are called to be is in the image of you, is in the image of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.